old-fashioned murder and mayhem, Desperate Desire, The Kidnapping of Corinne Modell, 1924. Mrs. Eva Modell gazed lovingly at her 10-week-old baby girl, Corinne, as she laid the sleeping child in her pram for her afternoon nap. The May weather in Philadelphia was clear, and temperatures hovered in the low to mid-60s. In 1924, the West Philadelphia neighborhood around 60th Street, where the Modell upholstery shop was located, was considered a desirable place to live and raise a family. Propping the door to the shop open, she wheeled the carriage to sit just under the large picture window so Corrine could get fresh air as she slept, and Eva could keep an eye on her as she waited on customers. A short time later, she stepped outside to check on her baby, but something seemed off. Suddenly, she realized what it was. The baby was gone. Welcome to another episode of Old Fashioned Murder and Mayhem. I am your host, Mindy Hudson, bringing you tales of historical true crime with a twist of genealogy. Today's story, Desperate Desire, The Kidnapping of Corinne Modell, is a heart-stopping narrative about a case that sent shockwaves through the suburban neighborhood of West Philadelphia on May 5, 1924. At the time of the crime, Philadelphia was experiencing a population boom. According to historian Margaret Marsh, quote, the Market Street elevated train spurred tremendous population growth across a three-mile swath of West Philadelphia, end quote. She wrote, the promise of a 15-minute ride from the western edge of the city into the center of town caused commuters to make West Philadelphia the fastest-growing section of the city during the first decade of the 20th century. Russian Jewish immigrants who worked in the textile industry tended to migrate to this area in the early 20th century. Low-cost housing and easy access to the sweatshops located a few blocks away where many of these migrants worked offered these families a measure of safety. Hirsch Harry Modell, born 1888 in Russia, immigrated to the U.S. in 1907, fleeing the First Russian Revolution of 1905. He married Eva Samlowitz, or Samuels, born 1889, whose family also fled Odessa about the same time. The wedding took place in New York in January 1915. The couple moved to Philadelphia, where their first child, Alvin, was born in 1917. Harry ran a linoleum and upholstery business on the bottom floor of a three-story flat at 116 South 60th Street, and the family lived upstairs. Six years would pass before the addition of little Corrine, who arrived on February 26, 1924. Corrine was a tiny baby, so small that people remarked that she looked like a doll. Her beautiful dark hair and bright eyes reflected her Jewish heritage. In today's world, a mother wouldn't dream of leaving an infant unattended. Still, in the 1920s, it wasn't uncommon for even small children to play outside in their neighborhoods with freedom our generation couldn't imagine. On that day, six-year-old Alvin Modell was at school. As negligent as the actions of Eva Modell may seem today, the thought of someone snatching her child never crossed her mind. 
In fact, at first, the worried mother thought perhaps her neighbor, Mrs. Samuel Sieberman, who often kept Corinne when Eva ran errands, had heard the baby crying and seeing that Eva was busy with customers took her to comfort. She quickly went next door to the butcher shop to check. To her horror, Mrs. Sieberman didn't have the baby. It was at this point that Eva began to panic and ran out into the street screaming. Her pitiful wails attracted the attention of her neighbors, who summoned the police. Someone had taken Corrine between 2 o'clock p.m. Monday, May 5, 1924, when her mother had wheeled her carriage outside, and 2.15 when she went out to check on her. As the police were gathering evidence, Harry Modell arrived at the scene to find his hysterical wife, and neighbors gathered around trying to calm her. When he learned what was going on, he almost collapsed. Theories about who would kidnap an infant and why began swirling. Harry Modell said that because he ran a business, some might assume he was wealthy and take the child hoping for a ransom. Another chilling thought was that someone had snatched the child to harm her, as was often the case with infant abductions. There was also the possibility that she had been taken by a deranged woman, such has been the case of Ada Huff, a North Water Gap, Pennsylvania nurse, who had been accused of taking a 10-month-old infant in Philadelphia four years earlier. In that case, the baby had been returned to its rightful mother. As the Modell case was investigated, detectives traveled to Monroe County, Pennsylvania, where Ada Huff was now living, to question her. However, Miss Huff had a solid alibi. Officers and neighbors fanned out in all directions, looking for clues to what had happened to little Corrine. According to her mother, the baby had on a long white dress with knitted white booties and a bonnet. Officer James J. Gattigan, Jr. located a woman, Mrs. Elizabeth Chesson, who claimed to have noticed a blonde woman wearing a long yellow coat pick up the child around the time of the baby's disappearance. She wrapped a blue and white plaid blanket around the baby and then tucked her coat around the bundle. Mrs. Chesson thought it was the baby's mother. She saw the woman was in a hurry and heading toward Sansom Street. Armed with this information, Gadigan hurried to Sansom Street, where he spoke with John Allen, a firefighter, who was sitting on his porch. Allen said he had seen a woman fitting that description pass by earlier heading south toward Walnut Street. Two young boys directed the officer to Locust Street, where the woman had been seen carrying the baby as she rushed past 56th and Pine. Firemen at the station there reported seeing a woman hurrying by with an infant and thought the baby must have been ill and in need of medical help. The woman was disheveled and moving quickly. The trail ended at Black Oak Park, where the last witness saw her heading north. Police fanned out across the park looking for clues. At about 2 a.m., they discovered one of the white booties beneath a tree. Newspapers the following day were filled with articles citing all the details, 
rumors, possible outcomes, and photographs. The Modell family was completely on edge. Eva Modell could do little more than sob and wring her hands. She was beside herself with fear that her baby would die without nourishment, a thought which sent Eva into fits of hysterical sobbing until exhaustion set in and left her rocking in her chair, moaning quietly. Harry Modell found it impossible to be still. Periodically, he would get in his automobile and drive around the streets, hoping to see some clue to lead him to his daughter. Then he would return home, depressed and dejected, hoping there had been some new development while he was gone. Late in the afternoon, Harry fell into a heap in the corner of his store and sobbed. On Tuesday, May 6th, the Philadelphia Inquirer published an appeal by Mrs. Modell which read, quote, To all humanity, a heartbroken mother is mourning the loss of her dear little baby girl, only ten weeks old, which someone has taken from us and only God can give us. Won't you, one and all, help us to restore this child to the mother and father? Should you see a tall, blonde woman of heavy build with a darling baby girl with blue eyes and dark hair, please give us just a few moments of your time and communicate with any policeman. Everybody is searching and searching without any avail, End quote. Many, many leads were followed. People questioned and houses and buildings searched. Still, there was no sign of little Corina. That afternoon, a woman called the police department and asked to speak to Gadigan. He and two other detectives met the informant, Mrs. Lena Churchville, the widow of a former police officer. She told him that a woman from her neighborhood was seen walking briskly through the park with the baby on Monday. Mrs. Churchville said the baby was supposedly born Monday morning. Yet, as any woman would know, it was unlikely the mother would be taking a stroll with it by that afternoon. Something was not right. She led them to Warren Street, about a mile east of 60th. She warned that while the woman in question might have been a legitimate new mother, there were just too many coincidences that didn't add up. There was a lot of pressure on the detectives, and this situation would have to be handled carefully. If they rushed into the home of an innocent family, accusing them of stealing a baby, and they were mistaken, heads would roll. However, if they didn't follow through, and it did turn out Corrine was being held in the house, they might be responsible for not saving the child when they had the chance. Some serious decisions needed to be made and quickly. It was finally decided they would enter the residence at 5136 Warren Street, claiming to be following a robbery suspect. They could get a look inside the house and assess whether anything looked suspicious. There was no one on the first floor, but when they burst into the upstairs room, they found two women tending to a new mother who was in bed with a baby laid on her breast. The women were startled, but the mother was furious. She screamed at them and threatened that they'd answer for scaring her and her baby to death. About that time, the woman's husband arrived and was met by the two officers downstairs. He also reacted with fury. 
The cops explained the story that they had followed a suspect they thought had entered the premises. When asked about the child, the woman claimed the baby had been born the previous day. She said they could check with her physician, Dr. M.C. Thrush, if they didn't believe her. The reaction of the couple was so convincing, they left, thinking they'd made a mistake. Even so, the detective decided to question Dr. Thrush. Unfortunately, the doctor was away on a case that took him the entire day. It was late into the night before he was questioned. When asked whether he had delivered a baby for Mrs. DeMarco the previous day, he said no. However, he did remember treating her about a month ago when she had come to him asking for help. He agreed to accompany the policeman to the DeMarco house to get to the bottom of it. Anthony Gorman DeMarco, the resident at the Warren Street house, was born about 1893 to Italian immigrants. He worked as a construction laborer, particularly in cement. In 1922, he married Mary Ellen Hewitt, who was born in April 1896 to William Hewitt and Mary Christie, immigrants from England. Mary Hewitt was considered a fallen woman. In 1914, at 17, she gave birth to a son named James, or Jimmy. The boy was sickly and suffered from epilepsy. He wore braces on his legs to help him walk. Mary's mother passed away in 1918. Mary Hewitt was overjoyed when she met Gorman a few years later. He married her despite her moral flaws and welcomed her son into his home. Coming from a large Italian family, the one thing Gorman wanted more than anything else was to have many children of his own. Unfortunately, a year and a half passed with no sign of a baby, and Gorman's attitude toward his wife began to change. He became angry that she failed to conceive, and even began berating Jimmy for his disabilities. As time passed, Mary became desperate. She must have a baby no matter what it took. It was even rumored that Gorman was so furious with her inability to get pregnant that she was seen with blackened eyes from time to time. In her despair, she had gone to Dr. Thrush, who had examined her and gave her the heartbreaking news that it would be impossible for her to have a baby. He suggested adoption, but Mary bitterly remarked her husband wanted a child of his own. Then she asked the doctor to help her secure a baby that she could pass off as their natural child. She told Dr. Thrush her husband would believe her if she told him she was expecting and she could bring the child home, claiming she had given birth while he was at work. Dr. Thrush was dumbstruck, but he never dreamed she'd go through with that plan. When the detectives brought the doctor to Warren Street, Harry Modell was present too. The DeMarcos were adamant the baby was theirs, and Gorman was ready to fight for his wife and child. They cuffed him to restrain him. They were able to convince him to allow Dr. Thrush to examine Mary to put the matter to rest once and for all. Of course, when he was alone with her, the physician counseled her to tell the truth. At this point, Mary DeMarco broke down and admitted she had taken the baby. She had been walking in the vicinity and noticed the child was unattended in the pram. 
It seemed to her to be the answer to all her troubles. She saw the mother was distracted and scooped up the tiny bundle, wrapped her up, and fled. Harry Modell was allowed to identify the baby as his little Corrine. He joyfully took her in his arms and carried her straight away to her anxious mother. A large, cheering crowd had gathered outside the store as the Modell family was reunited. Both Gorman and Mary DeMarco were arrested and taken in for questioning. Gorman was distraught and confused. He had been convinced that the infant was his child. He was held as a material witness, but was released on a $1,000 bond. He was quoted as saying he would seek a divorce from his wife on account of her treachery. Mary DeMarco was held without bond. The public sentiment of rage over the kidnapping soon turned to pity as the details of the case were presented. The sad sight of the broken woman on trial sobbing in the courtroom was compounded when her crippled 10-year-old son fell into her arms begging the judge not to send his mother to jail. Even the Modell family was torn about what should be done. Kidnapping charges could hold sentences of up to 20 years. According to Eva Modell, she was just happy to have her baby back alive and healthy. She knew Mrs. DeMarco needed to be punished for the agony she had caused, but life circumstances seemed to have already punished her. Mary DeMarco pleaded guilty to kidnapping. Judge William C. Ferguson had a tough decision to make. In his sentencing, he said, quote, The court has not been unmoved by what has been said on Mrs. DeMarco's behalf. At the same time, I am bearing in mind that the mothers of our city must have no fear of their little ones being taken from them. This unfortunate woman must be punished for what she has done. The court must take into consideration the misery and anguish she has caused the parents of the child she stole, end quote. On May 19, 1924, Mary Hewitt DeMarco was sentenced to a two-and-a-half to five-year term at Moyamensing Prison, plus a $500 fine. As she was being led sobbing from the courtroom, she called out to her white-haired father, William Hewitt, to keep up her life insurance policy for Jimmy because she didn't think she'd make it halfway through her sentence. The stress and shame were too much for Mr. Hewitt, who passed away four months later. Five women shared the reward money that had been offered by the city for information that led to the arrest of the kidnapper and the recovery of Corrine Modell. Mrs. Minnie Heeson, Mrs. Lena Churchville, Mrs. Sarah Castle, Mrs. Aline Duffy, and Mrs. Mary Hayes. In the years that followed, Anthony Gorman DeMarco had a change of heart over the actions his wife had taken. He realized that as wrong as her actions had been, she had done it to try to please him. He took Jimmy in to live with him while his mother served her term. Mary was released on November 19, 1926 after serving two and a half years. She and Gorman briefly separated by 1930, according to the U.S. federal census. At the time, Mary and Jimmy were lodging with a family on 57th Street, and she was working as a carpet setter. 
Gorman was living with his sister and brother-in-law and claimed his marital status as divorced. James Jimmy Hewitt died July 1, 1938, at the age of 24. His death certificate stated he died from epilepsy and chronic obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or heart blockage. He was buried in Fernwood Cemetery. It appears that Gorman and Mary had reconciled by 1940, as they are found living together in the 1940 census on Marion Avenue. Mary Hewitt DeMarco died in 1949 at age 53. She was buried at Fernwood Cemetery. Anthony Gorman DeMarco died in 1950 and was buried at Holy Cross Cemetery. He was 56. Two days after the return of baby Corrine, her brother Alvin was skipping through the store and tripped over a roll of linoleum, breaking his arm. His screams of pain nearly caused his panicked mother's heart to stop and had neighbors rushing to the store. Fortunately, the lad was taken to the hospital and treated. Soon, life returned to normal for the Modell family. Every year until he died in 1960, on the anniversary of the kidnapping, James J. Gattigan, the detective instrumental in restoring Corrine to her family, received a postcard from her in thankfulness for his heroic deed. Corrine Modell married Samuel Graboy in Philadelphia in 1945. Eva Modell passed away in November 1972. In his old age, Harry went to live at the Walnut Park Plaza Retirement Hotel, which caught fire in January 1976. He was rescued from a sixth-floor window by firefighters. Reporters snapped a photograph of the 88-year-old as paramedics helped him down the tiller ladder. The article stated his daughter Corrine was there to comfort him as he shivered in the sub-freezing temperatures. He quipped, quote, at least I'll have something to remember before I die, end quote. He passed away in 1979 at the age of 91. Corrine Modell Graboy lived a long and happy life, according to a quote by her daughter. She claimed that her mother didn't let the notoriety of her kidnapping affect her joy for life. She passed away on June 5, 2015, at the age of 91, and is buried at the Mount Sharon Cemetery in Delaware, Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening to this episode of Desperate Desire, The Kidnapping of Corrine Modell, 1924. Please remember to like, subscribe, and comment. If you enjoy this content, consider becoming a member. You'll receive links to more content covering the documents and methods used to put these stories together. Premium members also have access to genealogy class videos in which I will teach the basics of beginning genealogy through advanced genealogy methods. Just look for the membership tab on YouTube. And be sure to join me again next month for another episode of Old Fashioned Murder and Mayhem.